Hello, hello. All right, so we're going to be uh, in Daniel 2. And in terms of content or reading, we're going to be reading from verse 25 onward. But don't worry, we'll be touching back in the previous verses because the context is pretty important. But Daniel chapter 2, and we'll be starting in verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him thus, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions in your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made it known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest, arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that they had not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they may dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet of the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And then for the final verses, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and a chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So, as we are uh, trying to get through all of these verses, I'll have to uh, make sure I'm on track with main ideas in this text and not getting too far sidetracked. Uh, so just to anchor this in the whole study of Daniel, uh, we've been kind of thematically going through the general idea of, of Daniel as a field guide for exiles. And that's kind of rooted in the start of Daniel, which is the exiles of Israel getting dragged off into captivity. And the question is, okay, well, who's Daniel written to? What purpose does it serve? And so I think primarily the target audience is the exiles of Israel who would hear these prophecies, hear about God, and then be encouraged by it. And so it's a field guide for these exiles. And if you want, let's say, a central idea for our time tonight, that would be he removes kings and appoints them. And that just comes out of the prayer from Daniel last week in verse 21. He removes kings and he appoints kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So that's the main theme that you see in this vision. Now remember, Daniel saw this vision and its interpretation before he prayed that prayer. So all of the prayer was really kind of flavored by the vision and its interpretation which we didn't dwell on last week, but if you were to look back now at the prayer, you would see, oh, I can see why he prays these things in light of all the things that are predicted. So that's, uh, let's just say, a basic overview of the text. Now, uh, as we're starting off, I have to acknowledge on the front end, I said when we started Daniel, there's a lot of prophecy and a lot of narrative, and the prophecy section is dominantly back-weighted. So chapters essentially seven through the end of the book are all prophecy. And the front end of the book is dominantly narrative. That's kind of a simplification. As you just saw here, there's prophecy and then narrative kind of mixed together. But for the sake of time, we're not going to dwell on the, let's say, interpretation of prophecy and those principles just yet. When we get to chapter 7, we'll take a time to like essentially pull over and park and say, how do we interpret prophecy? How do we make sense of it? And when we get there, we'll come back to chapter 2 and we'll ask the question, okay, knowing all that we know, let's see how that played out in chapter 2. But if you want, let's say, a, a sneak peek, the prophecy in chapter 2 and the prophecy in chapter 7 are essentially the same prophecy. The prophecy in chapter 2 and chapter 7 are roughly the same four kingdoms, four beasts. I'm not going to go too deep into that or I'll get sidetracked. So I'm not going to dwell on that too much. When we get to chapter 7, we'll come back to chapter 2 and we'll make sense of it. Okay? So tonight, there's not really time for this, but I just wanted to give you that on the front end. I'm not trying to skirt around too many issues, although you might feel some of the flavor of the interpretation of prophecy. So... Uh, with that being said, look at verse 25. Uh, and this, remember, picks up in the narrative from where Daniel approaches Arioch. And Daniel tells Arioch, I have the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then Arioch goes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I have found someone who can interpret your dream. And we know that that's not actually what happened, right? In narrative, often characters lie. And so we don't trust the characters, we trust the narrator. The narrator told us that Arioch was going to kill Daniel. Then Daniel tells Arioch, give me time. Then Daniel gets time in favor with Nebuchadnezzar. Then Arioch comes around and tries to take credit after the interpretation comes around. Now, one interesting question is raised. If you look back at verse 16 of chapter 2, the text says that Daniel goes to the king and appoints a time, essentially requests a time from the king to find the interpretation. So, and then it wouldn't then quite make sense why Arioch tries to take credit if King Nebuchadnezzar's already been, let's say, exposed to Daniel and knows that Daniel's the one who's asking for time. So what's likely happening is either uh, Arioch is still going for it, even though he knows King Nebuchadnezzar knows about Daniel, or when Daniel, let's say, requests favor with King Nebuchadnezzar, it's really Daniel sending, let's say, 
through Arioch a request for time, and then God grants that request favor. So Daniel himself doesn't necessarily have, need to have gone into the presence for the favor to have been granted. So nevertheless, Arioch is probably serving as the intermediary the whole time. And now, once Daniel has the interpretation, Arioch comes and he says to the king, I have someone who can interpret your dream. He's trying to take credit, as a, a good minion does. And so you see that in the text. And then uh, when he goes to the king and he says, I found from the king uh, one who can find an interpretation, verse 26, the king is talking to Daniel now. Are you able to, to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And notice the difference between now Arioch and Daniel. Arioch tries to take credit where credit's not his. And Daniel punts credit away from him when it could have, let's say, justly been taken, right? The king declares to Daniel, asking that question, and Daniel says these words, verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers could show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So Daniel punts credit away from himself towards God, and he's essentially saying to Nebuchadnezzar, your pagan system won't answer the question for you. Remember in chapter 2, that's kind of a, a driving theme. The, the pagan, essentially, system, cohort, astrologers, all these people, they come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, it's not possible. The gods don't dwell with us, and so we, we, there's no way for us to know. And now Daniel comes to the king and says, actually, there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries, and, but it's different than all these other gods. So it's almost like an apologetic between the pagan gods and their insufficiency and Yahweh and his sufficiency to be able to do what, what needs to be done, right? So uh, Daniel attributes credit to God. And then Daniel is going to proceed to tell the king his, his dream, which keep in mind that, that, that itself is a surprising thing, right? Now it's likely King Nebuchadnezzar knows his dream. And so he, this is like, let's say, a test, a litmus test of does he actually know what, what he's talking about? So when Daniel tells this dream, this is kind of the first round of, do I trust what's coming next? Because at the interpretation stage, Daniel could say anything, because remember, Nebuchadnezzar needs the interpretation. That's why he withholds what the dream is. And so Daniel uh, essentially says the dream to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 31, and he tells him these words. You saw a great image. This image is mighty, and it's exceeding in brightness, and it stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Okay? Now I'm going to summarize 32 through 35. So basically in the image, you have a head of gold, you have a chest and arms of silver, you have a midsection and thighs of bronze, and then you have legs, like probably shins down, and feet, which are iron, and then the feet kind of at the bottom of the legs become like iron and clay mix. So this is, this is the picture of the image. And we could say, oh, this is very interesting, I don't know what any of that means, except for that it's kind of like cheating, but Daniel also tells us the interpretation of what all these things mean. So we don't have to speculate too much about what he's talking about. But there's a part, verse 35, uh, which I want you to hold on to in your head because when we get to the end of the interpretation, we're going to come back to verse 35 um, to make sense of it, right? So we're going to try to interpret the dream or the, uh, the image, and then we're going to get to, okay, what is verse 35 talking about? So um, first thing, uh, he tells the dream, and then he tells his interpretation, and he says, the first kingdom is Nebuchadnezzar, or the, sorry, the head of the first uh, of the image is Nebuchadnezzar. He says, uh, to you, our king of kings, uh, you are uh, the one who's been set up by God in this role. Essentially, you have authority and dominion right now, and you are the head of gold. Now, it's interesting in the text, Daniel two times in this text caveats he says, the God of heaven has given you the kingdom, this is verse 37, and at the end of uh, 
verse uh, 38, or the beginning of verse 38, he says it again, and in whose hand he has given. So two times Daniel anchors a text by saying, God gave it to you. But Nebuchadnezzar probably doesn't hear any of that because Nebuchadnezzar hears he's the head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar like, great, I'm the head of gold, good, good to go. And then verse 39, Daniel says, there's another kingdom which will, is inferior to you. Now, this is probably not referring to the strength of that kingdom. It's probably referring to its image on the statue. So there's the head and then there's a the thing lower than the head. So there's another kingdom below you, the underneath you one. That's the second kingdom, and it shall arise after you. And then a third kingdom of bronze, so now we're three quarters of the way down the statue, another kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. So there's, each of the sections of the statue represent three different, four different kingdoms. Kingdoms two and three are almost barely touched in this text. And then kingdom four is the one that gets a bulk of the exposition, verse essentially 40 to 43, a long description. And Nebuchadnezzar, the head, gets a long description. So the first piece, so Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. He's the, let's say, first of the kingdoms in this prophecy. He's the one reigning right now by appointment of God. After Nebuchadnezzar, there's gonna come another kingdom. Now, if you look at history, the other kingdom that comes after Nebuchadnezzar is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now again, this will make more sense in Daniel chapter seven when we get there, but the Medo-Persian Empire takes over right after Nebuchadnezzar. It's inferior in some ways, but it's stronger in other ways, right? It actually conquers Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. After the Medo-Persian Empire, if you were to like follow the unfolding of history, the very next empire, some of you history buffs might know it, is the Greek Empire or the Hellenistic Empire. Alexander the Great comes and essentially in 10 or 15 years, conquers most of the known world and sets up his empire. Right? That's the empire of bronze, the empire of, and the reason I'm arguing that is because each of these empires are successive empires, one after the other. And so again, when we get to prophecy, we'll unpack this more, but I think they're each successive empires. So there's one that arises after Nebuchadnezzar, then there's one that arises after that. And so there's Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. He loses the fight and he loses to the Medo-Persians. The Medo-Persians lose to Alexander the Great. He dethrones them. Who does Alexander the Great lose to? The Roman Empire. Alexander the Great is overthrown by the Roman Empire. Now what's different between the Roman Empire and the other empires that we just mentioned is they are a divided empire. That's what verse 40 to 43 tells us. They're an empire of iron, strong, and they break all the other empires. There should be a fourth kingdom, this is verse 40, there should be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these, referring to the previous empires. So it destroys all these previous kingdoms. But the problem with this empire, even though it's strong, it's fractured, right? It has iron and clay, it doesn't mix together well. What do we know about the Roman Empire? Well, how does the Roman Empire fall apart? It doesn't fall apart by being overthrown by any other empire. The Roman Empire falls apart because it actually fractures over time. So it doesn't actually get conquered by anyone, it just kind of breaks apart over time. My point is, this is a prophecy 500 years before most of these events take place perfectly accurate with all of these unfolding events, right? The God of heaven prophesies and those prophecies come true and the prophecies easy to understand. So all of these take place and now let's jump back to the uh, verse 35 and then understanding what this stone is. So at the end of, the, end of this, uh, I'm gonna pick up in verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together are broken in pieces and they're broken in pieces by that rock that is formed not by human hands. So the rock is carved out, not from human hands. It goes and it crushes which part of the statue? It crushes at the feet of the statue. That's where it hits, it's where it makes its impact. It hits the feet, the whole statue comes down, the whole statue is destroyed. 
and the whole statue essentially goes off into the wind like chaff. And then it says something interesting. This is the second sentence in verse 35. But the stone that struck the image become a, became a great mountain. So the stone that hits the image, it's a stone at first, and then when we're later looking at the description, it became a great mountain. And so now we have, let's say, a problem, right? If this prophecy is fulfilled, how do we make sense of the fact that after Rome falls, well, there's other empires that pick up all over the world, right? If, if the fifth empire is really the final empire, the eternal empire, the one that rules and reigns forever, there's not a kingdom that's coming after it. Well, how do we make sense of this prophecy? Because I just said, Rome is the fourth kingdom and you know, Rome's not around anymore. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I think we can turn to a prophecy of Jesus about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 13 in the New Testament, we'll try to make sense of how this fifth kingdom works. So this is Matthew 13, and we will be in verse 31. Jesus, talking to his disciples, says these words. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown... It is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the mustard seed starts from small and it grows big. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it all was leavened. Okay, so you see the picture. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It starts small, but eventually it conquers. Eventually it works its way through the whole thing. What is the kingdom of heaven like? It starts like a mustard seed and it grows to be the biggest gardening plant. Now that's metaphorical language, but the point is it starts small and it becomes a gardening plant that other things find shelter within. Starts small, grows big. What happens with the rock in the fifth kingdom? Starts as a rock, but in verse 35 it says, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth, okay? I think these are talking about the same thing. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? It's not a kingdom. That's a mountain that comes down and lands on the statue and it's, now it's established and it's done, right? That's not what's being described here. What's being described is a rock that crushes the statue and then grows into a mountain. If you're asking the question, how does a rock grow? It's kind of outside of the scope of this image. But the point is the rock starts as a rock, destroys the image as a rock, and then it becomes a mountain when you look at it over time. So how do we make sense of all these things? I think the prophecy has been fulfilled in the days of the Roman Empire. If you're asking the question, okay, how? Well, Jesus tells us about his kingdom is one, it's different than the kingdom we're expecting, not because it's not at all an earthly kingdom, but because it's not primarily an earthly kingdom. So it's not that it's not at all focused on this world. If you look at the New Testament, the commands to the apostles, the commands to the church, the commands are not, not totally separated from this world, right? There's a real concern for humans in this world, living in this world, how to shelter and care for people, the orphan, the widow. How do you actually treat one another here? So the kingdom of heaven is in some sense concerned with this world, but not ultimately, because ultimately the kingdom of heaven is defined by a spiritual kingdom, which Christ is ruling and reigning over right now. That's the picture in the New Testament. Jesus dies on the cross, he resurrects, and he goes and ascends to the right hand of the Father from whence he comes to rule and reign. That's what we say in the Apostles' Creed, right? He's now ascended to the right hand of the Father from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is what we confess as Christians. So we don't say Jesus is not yet king or his kingdom is not yet here. We say his kingdom is here right now. He's currently ruling. Okay, in what sense? How does the kingdom grow? 
starts small, and then it conquers over time. This is how the kingdom grows. It doesn't come down and all at once establish and rule, and now it's perfect. It grows over time. It's like leaven that leavens the whole loaf over a period of time. It's metaphorical language to say the kingdom of heaven will start small and it will grow. Same thing with the rock. The rock starts small and it grows into a mountain. I think that's the image here. So how do we make sense of this? The fifth kingdom doesn't lose. It doesn't get replaced. It doesn't get supplanted. It's the final kingdom. That's the fifth kingdom. But the fifth kingdom doesn't start in its ultimate form. The fifth kingdom actually has to grow into that over time. As we see the unfolding of history, it actually grows alongside essentially the rest of the world as it's growing and conquering. Now, that growth is not perfect, it's not linear, but the growth is, shall we say, inevitable. And that's kind of the picture that you have here. And Daniel kind of seals this up by saying, at the end of the vision, verse 45, the dream is certain, the interpretation is sure. It's kind of what Daniel is like, by the way, if you doubt me, it's, it's definite, it's sure. So what happens? Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite get what's going on, so he worships Daniel. And if you think, no, 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 he's just, he's just you know, thanking Daniel. No, it, he burns offering to Daniel and he worships, says he falls at his feet and worships him. That's language otherwise used to pay homage to their gods. So he's not just thanking Daniel. He's a pagan king, so you can't really expect much more of him. What is slightly problematic is that the text doesn't tell us that Daniel corrects him. So we're kind of left with that open to interpretation on that. We can't really land hard one way or the other because the text doesn't say. But it is kind of strange that Daniel doesn't correct him because other places in scripture where someone's worshiped who's not God and they're a servant of God, they typically correct and say, don't worship me, right? Either way, Daniel's promoted. And when Daniel is promoted, he uses that and leverages that opportunity to promote his three comrades from from, uh, Israel. And he puts them in positions of power as well. And that is, let's say, a fulfillment or a partial fulfillment of the prediction of chapter one, which is they remain faithful to God. And what happens as a result of them remaining faithful to God? Well, they're different from the other people, and they're going to outlast all the other people. And this is uh, at least in part that. So not only in the first chapter were they victorious over the other cadets in that training program, and they're, let's say, better and wiser than all the rest, and they get, let's say, privilege and honor and respect as a result. Now we find them where they're essentially in positions of authority and power over Babylon. So this is in part, let's say, a, a prediction in chapter one. God didn't lose to the Babylonian gods. God actually allowed Jerusalem to lose. But God has not abandoned his people. How do you know? Well, his people actually rule in Babylon. They're, uh, they're rulers, they're authorities, they're influential people in Babylon. And so Daniel and, and, and company are modeling that in their life. Now this, their positions of authority and power, now become essentially the central point of friction or conflict between them and the rest. So at first, the point of question is, can the exiles survive? And if they, if they can survive, how can they thrive by being faithful to God in their training program, in their process, in their upbringing, right? In their schooling, how can they be faithful to God? Will it pay off for them? And now when we turn next week, we're going to ask the question, okay, now that they have positions of authority, is it still worth risking it all to be faithful to God? That's the question that the text is going to ask in the coming weeks. So with that, let me just close in prayer, and then we will get into some discussion. Father, We thank you that you are a God who rules in heaven and that you are uh, an authoritative, finally victorious God over all the kingdoms of this world. We know that you appoint kings and you take down kings uh, and there is no kingdom that can challenge your kingdom, which is unshakable and will be found ruling and reigning in the end. Lord, we ask for uh, patience and for understanding as we evaluate all of uh, making sense of these things. 
There's much difficulty in prophecy. There's much frustration sometimes. And so I pray that you would just give us um, patience and, and uh, understanding in, in these things. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would be with us now as we discuss the text uh, to be insightful and careful and uh, thoughtful with one another. We pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs>